Welcome to the audio version of SOCH 119, the largest interactive class about race and culture in the world. Join the nearly 800 students watching in person live Tuesdays and Thursdays on YouTube at youtube.com slash 119. For more information about the class or how to watch, go to soch119.org. Now from Happy Valley, it's time for class. Take it away, Sam. Yo, here we are. Crazy. Not where I expected to be. I expected to be in 100 Thomas today, but you know, I'm here. I'm back at home. Uh, and we had a snow day here in State College. It's not snowing now. It's actually really beautiful. But as these things go, that's kind of what happens. All right. Hey, so Jeff, can you go to a go to go to a couple of questions? We we picked out a couple, but it's important. You know, those of you on the stream be ready to put something out and if somebody wants to join we might have some space for someone to join so that would be kind of nice jeff do you got a, you have the first question that somebody asked uh, what was the impetus for my study of catholicism in south america i've always had a thing for religion first off i don't know i've been i've been having a kind of a, an argument with god since probably around 1980 uh, 1979 i think and uh it's when I had my first real, real argument. I was 19, and uh, mostly I, my first years, I just didn't, I didn't, I ignored God, so to speak. I mean, I, I you know, I, I grew up United Methodist Christian. I was, I was baptized, and and I went to became a member of a church. So I don't know whatever you call that, christened or something. I'm not sure what we called it, but. But it didn't really mean a whole lot to me. But then around 19, I started to think about some things in a more serious way. And then I started getting in arguments with God. And uh, and so I was just always just arguing, like, why things are the way they are. It just made no sense, you know. And then at one time, I think I gave God some kind of ultimatum. And I, I didn't get an answer. So I just kind of, you know, ignored ignored her or him or it or whatever. Uh, but I was always fascinated by the church because I was always, even though it was kind of very in my mind, like I was kind of overtly and logically having these arguments, the truth was that I was really sensitive and trying to work a lot of things out. And uh, so I was always fascinated by, in the Catholic church, I was fascinated by um, priests who, because I, I read this book from a, uh, when I was maybe in like 1984 or something, written by a, a priest who was doing this really pretty amazing work in Northeast Brazil. In this incredible, Northeast Brazil in the 60s was so poor. Oh my God. And the stories and what he was doing. And he he just seemed like, if you if you imagine, like if you're a Christian and you have the, the stories of Jesus, like the good stories, you know, like the the kind, loving Jesus, right, who is feed the poor and help the sick and, and all the important things at that level. This guy was that. I was like, man, he was just such a, it was, it was just such a cool story. And then I started reading more about these priests and nuns and church lay workers who were doing some really pretty incredible and brave work. And many were being killed by the authoritarian government. That were paid for with tax dollars from here in the United States, and um, anyway, uh, I I just felt like I wanted to better understand what they were doing as a way I think to help me 
stop arguing with God, you know, uh, I just felt like if I could just really see these people who were such deep believers, uh, who were doing, you know, this really amazing work, I could just kind of let, let that go. Right. Um, and cause at this point in time, I really was an atheist. I didn't believe in God, but I was still arguing, you know, it's like I was hearing voices, you know, like somebody who hears voices and argues with himself. That was kind of like me. So, Anyway, that just kept me really interested in the church, in the Catholic church. It was these really amazing people who were doing cool things. And so I found a spot where I could go with a very progressive bishop in the, the diocese of, of, of Cuenca in the province of Asuay in central Ecuador. And so I went, I, I moved there. And um, yeah, it was, it was, and I had already traveled there earlier, so. Um, yeah, so that's anyway. That's how I got. I don't even remember what the question was, but anyway, that's how I uh, that's how I got interested in studying the church, learning a new language is difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's I I actually have a difficult time with languages, also as Julie can can attest. Uh, I've been speaking Spanish for so long, and I still make the dumbest mistakes. I don't know. It just doesn't come natural to me. Some people it comes natural, others don't. I'm trying to learn Korean. Uh, at least quite a number of words, and it's just almost impossible uh, to to sort of attune my ear. But languages are tough, and you don't have to learn languages to really enter into a culture. You know, people say, oh, if you don't learn the language, you'll never really enter the culture, and I don't think that that's true at all. Um, I mean, and to, to a degree it's true, but I think what's most true is just an open openness to observe and to absorb other ways of being in the world, so. Elite Cycle Walk Windsor Camp from Windsor, Canada. Uh, yeah, hey, I love seeing that. I'm 54, but I want to learn from this course. Um, I'm and I'm 58. Only went to college for a semester back in the day. If I had the chance to attend this class back then, we have stayed, of course. Uh, huge and dedicated fan. Hey, heinous Dwayne, 66. Thanks for saying that. Thanks for writing that, both of you, actually. Um, I the reason I teach. The class is because I'm 63 and I learn from talking to people. We were going to have a conversation today, which we will have in, in Thursday's class, that I was – once I – we kind of developed it uh, yesterday and the day before what the class would be. Once I developed that the conversation, I was – I'm so anxious, uh, excited – anxious, I'm not sure. Excited might be a little too much, but looking forward to getting into the classroom and uh, and and asking students. We have some really good, really, really, I th think some great volunteers. We had awesome volunteers last Thursday, and um, I was really, really happy with Thursday's class um, and the volunteers. So, uh, but I'm really... Um, looking forward to the conversation that we were going to have today, but that we will have on Thursday. And so I too am learning, right? So what's going to happen is I'm going to, I have all these questions to ask the students and because, you know, like sometimes when you're on the, the in the big room and the, and it, it's kind of more, it's more, it, it's more intense. It's not like just having a, 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 a conversation with someone over coffee, right? It's like you have to really focus. So I have to focus, and I feel like the volunteers really focus. And then because we're concentrating, I think we get somewhere that we ordinarily maybe would not get. 
and arrive at some things in some new ways. And so, so anyway, that's why I continue to do it. How did you clear your mind from the disappointment of not getting a personal answer from God? Oh man, into Christian. Yet, you know, oh man, that is Carly. That is such a really, really cool question. So in a way, I, I suppose I didn't, I think how I cleared my mind was that I had met people who at that, by that point in my life, I had met people who were really religious and they were just following the steps that someone had laid out in front of them and told them that they should follow. So, okay. So, you know, you're Muslim or you're Jewish or you're Buddhist, you know, here's what you do or you're Christian or you're Catholic, right? This is the way we worship in the Catholic church, you know, and this kind of thing. And I watched people just do that. And then I, I would watch them be asked a question and they would just say, well, it's just the way it is. And I'd say, oh man, that's just not a very interesting way to answer the question. And so I didn't want to be like that. I didn't want to be just kind of turn on, become an atheist and be like, okay, God, this, this is, it's all silly and stupid and, and there is no God and that kind of thing. Like that just didn't feel right for me. Um, or pardon me, hang on, let me go back. That there is a God and God thinks and feels and believes all of these things. And I know that because I was told that and because I believe it. And I didn't want to be like that. But I also didn't want to be like, okay, there is no God. And that's all just really stupid, stupid and ignorant. And if you believe in God, like this is kind of, kind of dumb. I didn't want to be like that. I wanted to be more an, an agnostic, a person who, that, that, I don't really worry about those kinds of questions, but what I want to do is develop more of a deeper faith or a deeper spirit, like a connection to the life force. And that felt like, just felt better. So what I, what I found was it didn't matter whether I, I could explore a path to the, to the life force through Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism or Islam or anything. It didn't really matter which one I took. They're all just different paths to the same place. And so because I knew Christianity well enough, I knew that I could explore this with these priests and nuns. And I really, I just wanted to be the anthropologist who, who was all traveling around the countryside in, in rural, uh, in Ecuador, right? So uh, it was just a really cool, fun thing for an, an explorer like myself. But I, I just remained open. I just knew if I just kept meeting people, I would be inspired by enough of them that I wouldn't have to be angry and annoyed about the fact that I wasn't able to get the kinds of answers that I thought that I wanted to get. And uh, so anyway, that's how I was able to do it. And, um, but I, I, I really didn't, um, I didn't feel, yeah, I just, I didn't want to be negative, man. I just, I never, never wanted to be negative, you know, it just felt, even though I had my moments, you know, it's really easy to, um, to be a, well, here, I'll tell you, I'll t I guess I can tell a story. So uh, I've told this in class, so this is not like a new story, but I was, I think when I, in, in the, in the summer of 1986 was probably the closest I became to being pretty atheistic, meaning that I just had the idea that there was nothing out there and then we would just all be done with it. 
and we would die and that was it right there's no there's no spirit we didn't come from anything we're not going from any and to anything and it just all seemed and i was really digging into my studies in a in an intellectual positivist way meaning that if i couldn't see it i wasn't going to believe in it so anyway uh i was in mexico for the summer in 1986 and a buddy of mine came down and uh he and i uh, had the opportunity to travel to the south of Mexico to a region where they um, grow hallucinogenic mushrooms and use mushrooms as part of the uh, spiritual practice. And uh, and so um, it's just built into the culture, right? So we went, so we took a bus down and took us, I don't know, out of Mexico City. It took us maybe 12 or 15 hours. We finally got there. And um, we... Uh, got to the the place that we were staying. It's a really long, fascinating story. But we eventually got to where we were staying, and we we somebody gave us some mushrooms, and they were freshly picked right out of the 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 forest, um, kind of like a rainforest like, and and we took those, and and like and life opened up for me, and that was the first time I had ever tripped, had that kind of psychedelic experience hallucinatory psychedelic experience. First time for either, either of us. But when I woke up in the morning, it's just like I knew that I had been transformed because I saw something that I had never seen before. Saw something in the world that was really just beautiful. That, that what, I, what I thought I could see around me, the two or three dimensions, the three dimensions I could see, I really saw that there were four or five or six. And so it was really a that changed me. That just, I was never the same after that because I knew there was something magical about about the world, and it took the mushrooms to open that up for me. And then after that, I could have those some experiences that were akin to that or similar to that, but without the the psilocybin, without the the chemical reaction of the of the shrooms. So, and I only did it maybe two other times after that. I didn't really need to. So that was really that was really key. That was pivotal. For me, yeah, and I think what's also really pivotal is I'm the kind of person that I didn't need to keep doing it. It's not a thing I had to keep go, going back to again and again. It's going to either you you get it or you don't, and so I've always sort of had this will, this desire in me to not just keep hammering away at something and just accept that that is what the world is. You don't got to keep doing mushrooms every month or something like that that's irrelevant you either see it or you don't see it so that was that's a thought there by the way get in here get in here get in here listen up we're talking about some stuff today tune in it's social 19 time how did I feel as Jesus? Well, first off, man, I know I was making a joke about that in class, right? Like, you know, when you, you, I don't know, you imagined, but I don't, I don't know. I have something I want to say. I don't know if I know how to say it in a way that would kind of make sense, but maybe it's just when somebody sees us as special in some way, right? Somebody really sees us as special and elevates us. Like, you know, if we're lucky to have parents who have moments in which they give us this really unconditional regard, right? It's always conditional at some level, 
But you have moments when you just feel this deep abiding love or acceptance or something by somebody. And if we can have just a few moments of that, that can be enough to really hold us a lot. And so I think maybe we all have that because that's kind of what it was. I think the feeling that I had in, in those moments was just kind of like, whoa, I just special, you know what I mean? Like special in a moment in somebody's eyes for like 10 seconds or till the priest said, no, it's just some stupid gringo. That's not Jesus. Uh, but, you know, yeah. So I don't know. I guess I could say that. But what you say about teaching, why is classic teaching mostly a waste of time? Oh, man. It's because I think it's not teaching. I think classical teaching, which is, you know, we fill people's, we fill the minds of students up with information. And I don't think that that's teaching. It can be Socratic where you give them a little bit of information and you say like, okay, now work with that. And then they say something and you come back with another question and they say something, you come back with another question. I think that's not really teaching when we just fill people's minds with or give people information and tell them to go memorize it. There's nothing really happens there because we're going to forget most of the information that, that goes into our minds. And in, in when we, when we're forgetting that, um, what, we, what good does that do for us, right? If we, if we want to be a student and we want to learn how to think in some very interesting ways, what's it, what's it, I can, I don't need, I can, I can just have my phone with me all the time and just be constantly looking at information that I never had to memorize. I can just keep scrolling through and seeing all sorts of information, right? Definitions, you know, whatever it is, right? The, the components of a cell, like, oh, well, let me just pull a map up on my phone and look at it. But if I don't understand how all of these things fit together, then I haven't learned because that, that learning is, is about understanding how the pieces of life all come together and fit together. And teaching is helping people, A, feel motivated to do that, mostly on their own, because most learning happens on our own. And, and B, helping people, giving people a head start, meaning make, make it a few of the most important connections for people and then let them go with it. So I'll give you an example. So for me, there's uh, the thing, I talk about this a lot, I haven't for a year or so, I don't know, but freedom, freedom, choice and chance or freedom and determinism. If you study sociology there's n or social science, there's nothing more important than how you think about free, free will and freedom and choice and so on. And um, determinism or chance or factors and forces outside of our control. So the two things, right, we're trying to understand causality of human behavior and what causes people to think the way they think and act the way they think and feel the things that they feel, right? Where, where, where's the impetus for, for that, for that, that come from, you know, what's the causal nodes, so to speak. So one, one sort of side of the world is the, the inside of our own minds. Like I'm going to decide to think a certain way or, and I'm going to go out and do what I need to do to understand the implications of that. But I'm going to decide, or like, I, I really want to like today we were going to stream or not stream or what are we going to do? It's like, no, I we made a decision to do that. Okay. So nobody told, told, told me to do it. It's just a decision. We're going to do it. 
But on the other side are the factors of forces outside of our control, the things that are really shaping who we are, like the culture we're born into, the families we're born into, or, you know, our, our race, our sex, I mean, all sorts of stuff, right? The amount of money we have, I mean, anything, right? What we just happen to study in school and then it leads to all of these other things um, that have nothing to do with free will at a certain point, right? So those two things, managing freedom and determinism Managing the relationship between those, for me, is the most powerful sort of like a texture of thinking. I'm not sure how to say that, but uh, it's so valuable for deep analysis and deep thinking of the world. Well, I literally have talked about this in every single class that I've ever taught in my, you know, 39 and a half years of teaching, I think about it almost every day at some level. And it, it, is, it is a debate or a, an analysis that's woven into my consciousness. And every single day, I, and, and I think about it slightly differently. An additional light is, is sort of shown onto the layers of complexity of this free will and determinism, right? So it's like, oh, so that's that's teaching, right? Like I stay at it. That's the learning part. I stay at it. And you can't teach that. You can't give someone a definition. You got to encourage them to keep thinking about how this comes into play in your own life. And, uh, you know, the, the the implications for all of the, the things we have, we think we've chosen to think, say, or do, you know. And, and the other things that we haven't. So anyway, that's that's where I think that teaching is. I think I say it's a waste of time, but mostly it is. And then what happens is we turn these young, beautiful, young, creative like minds. Uh, we often, we too often, so often turn them against learning. So people hate school. Like, how can you hate school? Well, it's easy because school is drudgery, but. But what hating school then becomes hating learning, or I'm only in school because I want to get the I want to get the grades that will allow me to get the degree that will allow me to get the job that will allow me to live some kind of life that I think that I want to live. Well, God, how awful is that? You know, from the age of five up into the to the sixteenth grade, I guess. You know, when you graduate college, if you go to college, the if you hate that. And it to 12th grade, if you don't go to college or somewhere in between, if as, you know, a couple of people only, you know, you take a semester of college or whatever, like how, how awful that is. So um, to me, but a lot of us, that that's kind of how we teach because the system, like when you teach these big classes, it's like, it's so hard to do it any other way, or maybe that's what we've been taught to do. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, all I know is, I at some point couldn't do that anymore. And so I just stopped and I just couldn't do it. It just felt like it was just a horrible thing. Uh, what's your take on the Iowa caucus polls? Um, well, here's something, and you, you need to know that, first off, evangelicals are only about 13% of the US population. So I'm gonna talk about this in class in a couple of weeks, but they're only 13% of the US population. So, but evangelicals are, you know, highly, high, you know, they're highly motivated to a great degree. But we have this idea, if whether you're from the U.S. or not, that, that the evangelical Christian population is so big in the U.S. And it's actually not. 
Um, it's not that large. You know, we are not, I think we're 46% or 56% or something, maybe 56% white Christians in the United States. I mean, it's a fairly, it's, it's about half of the population are white Christians in the U.S. So anyway, so when we think about that kind of thing, it's like really important to put these kinds of things in perspective, right? Like evangelicals have such a hold on so much policy in the U.S., uh, which is really fascinating as opposed to mainstream Christians. And yeah. So if you don't know, if you're not from the U.S., um, we're starting the, 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 uh, the elections are starting. So the Democrats have already decided that Biden's the guy. And uh, this is this is where we're at. We're, and so we're not going to have any. Uh, we don't need to worry about who the, the candidate is. But um, but we have the, the Republicans have to pick their candidate. And, you know, you can see from the, the results in Iowa that, you know, Trump is, you know, likely going to be that guy. And we, I mean, who knows? I don't know, unless he gets thrown in jail or who knows what, charged with some kind of crime, which I, I don't know. I, I'm not weighing in on that. But yeah, so anyway, we started that process. And uh, whew, it's just going to be a long nine months. Let me just say that. I don't have any thought. By the way, I'm not avoiding it. I really don't have any thoughts. Of, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know even. I, I really am... I'm trying to be, uh, I could say, I mean, so much I could say and there's so much I can't, everything I say, it's almost like I want to, I would put it out and I want to pull it back. So yeah. All right. What's the next question? I hear what's your idea about how North and South Korea could be united again. You know what? I think the only way North and South Korea are going to be invited again is just somehow the, the, the military in North Korea wrestles control out of the hands of the the ruling family i mean that's it and i don't know how that's ever going to happen without a major meltdown in north korea and now with the kind of weapons that they have that's like pretty dangerous so but i i don't I, that's my my gut uh, unless you know conditions with the chinese and the russians with so much pressure on North Korea to just come to a negotiating table. Uh, and South Korea, you know, of course, the United States, we kind of, South Korea, we kind of, in years ago starting this, I mean, our stated goal was to get rid of the North Korean regime, man. We're not going to rest until we get rid of the North Korean regime. Well, if you're in the North Korean regime, that's just that you're going to, you're going to respond by getting as many weapons as you possibly can, because that's the stated goal of your enemy is to eliminate you. This would this would this kind of similar with in Israel and Palestine, right? So, uh, you know, if Hamas the, the stated goal is to dis, to be rid of Israel, destroy, take Israel off the map, well, that you're going to respond in a certain way then, and uh, that's how it is. So the U.S. this was the goal of ISIS for the U.S., but ISIS was on the other side of the world, so we didn't really care. Anyway, so that's kind of that, that. That's the North Korea issue. So I'd like to see it. I wish I could see it. It just seems so awesome to see North and South Korea unify. Um, I was up at the DMZ, by the way, a couple of years ago. 
and uh, really, wow, really intense. Yeah, really intense to be there. Um, the DMZ is called, it's the demilitarized zone. Is it possible to truly understand someone else's perspective or are we forever confined to our own subjective experiences? Hey, Majid, that's a really cool question. Um, yeah, it's impossible to really understand someone else's perspective because even if it's something really simple, like if I say, hey, you know, right now I outside of my window here in my office, I feed the birds. And if I were to tell you like, oh yeah, I really like birds and I feed the birds and you know, it's really awesome. I, I, I'm very uplifted by birds. You don't know what I mean by that. <laughs> you know, like you, you just are going to have some vision. You're not in my shoes. You don't see what I see. You don't have my experience. You're never going to fully understand. All you know is, hey, this knucklehead Sam uh, likes, says he likes birds. Like, all right, I, well, I like birds, and this is what it means for me. So I suppose uh, that's what it means for him. And, and so you just – it's just not possible. And and even the very simplistic things like that. So now imagine something like, you know, if I were to say, well, take a, a, a more complex question about, you know, maybe my thoughts about uh, abortion or, you know, something like that, or just elective death, you know, whether people should be allowed to take their own lives and, and in what situations. And I could I could write a whole book on it. And even then you could read the book. Uh, you would there would still be little things that never got in the book. So but, you know, you get closer. Right. Which is, I think, in a large part, where a lot of people write books because they feel like if I write a book and someone reads my book, they'll understand me at least about this one particular issue. And we all want to be understood. So that's kind of a cool thing. And maybe I. I used to teach that way. I used to talk a lot so that I was hoping that people would understand me. Um, but then no one ever really did understand me, which was probably a good thing for them. Uh, and so then therefore I just kind of stopped and then I start teaching in the way that I do, which is just ask students question and try to, questions and try to understand them. So I'm doing these Q and A's in between our classes so that, when, and by the way, if you're in the social 19 class, this this video you you normally you 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 would never watch these unless you felt like it. Unless you know we're going to do these on Wednesday afternoons. And so if you are in Tuesday class and then you're like, ah, Sam's going to respond to some more pointed questions. It's kind of like office hours, right, for people in the classroom and then people who are not in the classroom. And so that's how we're going to do it. Uh, and then you know prepare for Thursday's class. This is just a really unique situation. But um, so I'm talking more, but also talking, knowing that I'm being kind of fast and quick. So you you don't really can't understand. You know, like you just can't. So Majid, that's my answer to your question. Hey, when you realize that we humans are not in as much control of our lives as we intuitively think, how did you react? For me, it was actually a bit of a an uplift, to be honest with you, because I was able to let go of, for myself anyway, I was able to let go of a lot of things that I was, you know, I would try to make happen, you know, and, and I couldn't make them happen. And then I would start, you know, you sort of open that doorway up, like I'm some kind of a failure. It could be something like you can't pass. I can't get better than a C in my algebra class or calculus or something. Um, but it also could be something really more complex. Like I can't figure out how to be happy every day. Like every day, like why can't I be happy? Like this is, I only have one life. This is, this is it. I, and, and I'm going to just, at any moment, I'm going to fall over. 
or be diagnosed with something that's terminal and that'll be the end of me. Why wouldn't I just be happy every single moment of my life? And, and so then I like really get, I struggle with that until I realize, look, I'm not entirely in control of this thing called happiness and whether I am happy. And I don't even know what it means to be happy in the way that would be happy all the time. And so the more I understand that I'm not fully in control of those things, even at that level, it doesn't mean I give up being happy. I'm still, I'm still working at it, but sometimes I just get so frustrated with myself, not in a big way, but frustrated that I can't do the simple things. And so, yeah, so, so the awareness of that can be very uplifting, actually. So there we go. That's my answer to your question. That's a very cool question, by the way. You are listening to the audio version of Sociology 119. Hey, so you, so if you don't know, so this is Bossom. By the way, my class, you're going to be here in, in, in the end of March. And so uh, the class will meet you. But in the meantime, I'm going to have them watch a video of your story about you. So, you know, they, they kind of, they know who you are. But you're in Erbil. And I'm in, I'm in Mosul, actually. I left Erbil this morning. Oh, you're in Mosul. Okay. <laughs> in Iraq. So, hey, yeah. so what happened? What was the, what happened outside of Erbil? Uh, yeah, I was uh, watching some some news around 12.30 the morning last night when the first really huge explosion was heard and uh, the, followed by 11 really, really big explosions. And then uh, I opened the window to my bedroom and I could hear sirens and uh, talk in English, so I knew one of the bombs was probably near the consulate, the American consulate. Uh, and then it was in the news that uh, four missiles had hit uh, uh, a businessman in Erbil. He died with his uh, one-year-old son. His wife is uh, badly injured. <coughs> and uh, an hour later, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard uh, claimed responsibility for the bombing. Hmm. Yeah. Man, it's so, wow, man. It just really makes me nervous about what, you know, what we're seeing here. Yeah. How, how about you? How are people in Iraq? How are your friends? And Well, I left, I left around 11 a.m. coming to Mosul and uh, the entrance to the airport was closed. And it seems that I did not hear it in the morning that three more uh, drones had hit a real airport or attempted to hit, but they were shut down before they reached the airport. So, like, I think 10 days ago, there was a, a huge bombing in Iran and uh, on the anniversary of Soleimani uh, bombing in Baghdad. And uh, since the Iranians uh, blame Israelis and uh, they said uh, Israel had a foothold in Erbil and we bombed that house because there was some meeting for uh, Israelis or something like this. Yeah, which doesn't seem like I, that doesn't seem likely. No, no, no. Yeah, no. yeah, it doesn't. So, are you? Are people feeling re in Iraq feeling really nervous about this? Well, people in Erbil 
We're really nervous because I went around one outside and, uh, you know, I live in a, a 13 story apartment building and everybody was down in the parking lots. They were afraid to go back to their apartments because the American council is about three miles from where I live. And uh -huh. the sound was really, really strong. And I'm sure people living in higher floors felt it more than I did because I live on the ground floor. Uh-huh. Man. Yeah. Man. Yeah, yeah, it's really, yeah, it's unsettling. There's a lot. Hey, yeah, there's a lot going on, man. We are we are in the middle of some really uh, troubling un unease. I will say unease yeah. and unrest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. It's not just. I mean, it's everywhere, man. It's yeah. everywhere, but the, the whole region is. Uh, on a verge of explosion. I'm really afraid of that, really afraid of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So for you, that also must be really, just bring, like it's traumatizing, right, for you? I mean, you. You know, when uh, when I was watching the news this morning, again, when I learned of this guy, this guy was really uh, is a businessman and uh, he lives between Dubai and London and he just came to Erbil last week and he died in Erbil young and probably in his 50s wow. a really uh, good businessman and uh, he got killed his wife is badly injured his son is badly injured uh, his one-year-old daughter died with him and he had one guy from the philippines who worked for him also died <sighs> crazy crazy hey bossom can you uh just because i think people who are there's a lot of new people to the stream, so they don't, they probably don't know you. Do you feel, just take, just take a, a minute or a couple of minutes to say what, why I'm asking you those questions. Do you want to talk about it or do you, do you would you rather? Yeah, know? yeah, I, I, I felt, I felt what happened because I went through it. And uh, a funny thing, just before I heard the news about this guy dying and his wife was badly injured, now, funny enough, she has, she's suffering from broken hip, just like what I suffered from after my bombing. And yesterday, there, there was a question on Facebook, what year would you like to take out of your life? And I, right away, I said 2015, because that was the worst year for me and my family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I sympathize with the, with the injured, because I've been there. So uh, the the coalition forces got the wrong coordinates for what they thought was an ISIS bomb making building, yeah. and it was it was Bassem's home and his brother's home, and they were both two direct hits with smart bombs, and they destroyed the entire. Yeah, and Bassem's uh, wife Miata died. His his uh, daughter died, Tuka, and his um, brother Mohammed. And and your nephew, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and Bassem is still living in in the yeah living with us. So when he talks about the, we talk about the trauma. This is so it's really that's pretty intense that that gentleman um, had such an experience. Yeah, that's pretty intense. You know, Bassam, when I read these stories, right, um, like that, 
I, they, they, they touch. Uh, yeah, they touch me because I, they touch, because I touch you and you touch me. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not, these aren't just people. These are human beings. You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, when I heard that this guy, he came from London last Saturday and he died the next day, you know, the day after. Mm-hmm. And he, he doesn't live in Erbil. He lives between Dubai and uh, London. And he came to Erbil to die. I mean, this is devastating. I mean, yeah. 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 Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I uh, I hope things settle calm down i hope they just don't take off man we just the world we don't none we don't need this we don't need more death. we don't need it no we don't no we don't no yeah yeah uh, okay hey um all right man are you you're okay. in you're you're at your mom's house yeah in my mom's house yeah, in the kitchen in the kitchen you've been here <laughs> <laughs> we're all we're where all the magic happens <laughs> yeah, sitting on the table you had dinner on. <laughs> my wife and I, so if you don't know, my wife and I went to Iraq to visit Awesome and the most dangerous person we met. People say, oh, you know, were you, were, was it safe? Were you nervous? Were you whatever? And I'm like, well, listen, the most dangerous person I met in Iraq was Bassem's mom because she gave us, <laughs> she gave us so much food to eat and demanded that we eat it. And the food was so good. I swear I could still be there eating it. <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't even move when I was done. I don't think I had ever eaten that much food. Uh, you know, yesterday I was buying her some chocolate, dark chocolate, and I remember the chocolate you brought her. And I, yesterday I was just thinking about you just drinking the chocolate. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, when you come, when you're when you're visiting in in March, April, we'll send we'll send you back with some. Thank you so much. All right, give her my okay. greetings, please. And I'll, I will. I'll talk to you. All right, we'll talk. Okay. To you. Take care. Bye bye. All right, ciao. Welcome back. You are still listening to Sociology 119's podcast. Someone in the in the chat, you were talking about this, the practice of sati that that we were talking about in class last Thursday. And I couldn't in the moment, I couldn't remember that um, what it was called, but sati. I think it's I think that's how you pronounce it. But this idea that, you know, his in in Hindu culture and that, you know, the, the women's lives are so i mean it's it's very complex like the origin of it but what what our volunteer was talking about was this sati about his mother how his his mother was very much disregarded after his father died prematurely and her life had very little value and sati is this practice by which women end up throwing themselves on the funeral pyre of their husbands because there's just nobody that's going to take care of them and and it's almost like this involuntary death by suicide uh it's really disturbing yeah not on your life yeah 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 it's very disturbing this is what these are these kind of cultural practices but again you know these these old cultural practices that emerge in times when life is very precarious and very unsettling they didn't that did not emerge in modern day times but in a period of time when life was very 
yeah, life was not what it is today. And so, but then we keep, you know, it, 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 it sustains itself. I mean, I, women don't do that today, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's very odd. What are we willing to change or sacrifice or fix uh, to fix things like climate change? Man, Sean, that is like, that is, look, here, I'm, I'm going to answer the question as a sociologist. P human beings are willing to do whatever they need to do. Uh, there's, I don't, I don't think I've ever met ever anyone. I mean, okay, there are probably a, one out of a thousand people would just say, ah, who cares? I'm not doing anything. I don't care. I'm just going to live and I'm going to die. You know, like the curmudgeons who just life doesn't matter to them because they're just, you know, something. But most of us, the vast majority of us are going to, we will give up whatever we need to give up. But what we need to do is we need to understand or see that other people are going to give up something and if they do then we will you know this is the free rider problem right when when I'm, I'm willing to do something i'm willing to pay my taxes so long as i know that other people are paying their taxes so if we all are paying our fair share whatever it is then most people are pretty comfortable chipping in and, and even like you know community actions or something you know doing something good for the community let's go down to the park and let's all fix it up so if everybody goes down to the park and then we'll we'll make that happen we'll but it's really hard to ensure that everybody will do that. And if it doesn't have to pull an equal weight, but it has to pull, you have to pull your weight in somehow that's more or less equal. Which is, and, and it's hard to set up a system in which people, that happens, okay? Which is why like the kibbutz, kibbutzin system in, in Israel, ultimately, you know, ultimately almost every kibbutz starts to fall apart because you, you gotta solve this free rider problem and you can't, force people to do it. Like you have to put in X number of hours to the community service or something. You start doing that, then life just becomes forced. And it's not, you lose track of, of the, like the beauty of, of what it's supposed to be. And, and so climate change, people will give things up, but the problem is we need to have a system. We need to kind of develop things in a way that we, we feel like and we understand that we're all giving something, right? And we're all being hurt at some level or being changed or transformed, not in equal measure, but in, in, in measures that are not vastly different from the people around us. And, and that's the very difficult thing to do. It's not changing the actions of individuals. So this is the freedom and determinism thing, right? Don't focus on the freedom. By the way, okay, hang on. I'm going to take a drink because this is actually, I don't have many cool ideas in life, but every once in a while I stumble across one where I come back around and I'm like, oh, that's kind of creative in a lucky sort of way. I just stumble on huh? So remember, I was talking about freedom and determinism, right? So that our choices that we make versus the factors and forces outside of our control, right? So it's like we tend to focus on freedom. And your question is, is about the freedom piece. It's like, what are we willing to give up? Well, people are willing to will give up whatever they need to give up. But it's it's the it's the issue of changing the system so people change their actions without even being able to decide whether they change their actions, they just change their actions and it makes sense to change them. It's like, Oh, okay. Of course I'm going to do X, Y, or Z because now that's what we do as a people. This is how we live. And it's not about, 
I never, I don't even really have to make the choice of that, but I would choose it because now, because we've now set a system up, meaning we, we restructure the way individuals, the system impacts the lives of individuals so that everybody has to act, think, and be in a slightly different way. And that's the difficulty with climate change and climate collapse is making changes at the larger levels of the system. And that's, of course, what we need to do. Yeah, it's not like, hey, you need to make sure you recycle. It's like you set it up so that, of course, people recycle. But how do you set it up that way? Or, you know, in these larger terms. So anyway, that's a that's a thought. All right. I don't know if you thought I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> wonder what Doc thinks about or feels exists in the void between science and belief. The void between science and belief. OK, so here it's interesting you call it a void. So the most profoundly intellectually expansive scientists who I've met in my life, right? People who are, and I also social scientists, right? Not, not just hard sciences, you know, physics and biology and chemistry and engineering or whatever, but also social sciences. The most complex and advanced thinkers that I've ever, when I, when I meet them, who I just kind of sit back in awe of the vast display of wisdom wit and knowledge that they carry with them day after day, usually fueled or or surrounded or embedded in a deep sense of humility. The, the, the most brilliant people are also almost always the most humble people um, because they're aware of how much they don't know. The more you know, the more you know how much you don't know. Uh, and so almost all of them also, everyone that I've ever met, I will say, has had a corresponding deep reverence for the spirit, the spirit world, the world, the intangible world, the world that we can't really know, the unknowable world, like, you know, the vastness of space, you know, 100 billion stars in a galaxy times 100 billion or 100 trillion galaxies, basically endless. It's like you, ultimately, you want to know how did we, how did we get here? You know, the, the, the awe inspiring beauty of that kind of question. Like, what are we doing? So I find that the scientists who are the most brilliant are also always in connection with those spiritual questions and the, the, the questions fuel their science and the science fuels their question. And so the void there's, so, so there is no void. There's no, there's no empty space in between those two. They're one and the same. And that's pretty, yeah, that's, that's pretty awe-inspiring, actually. So I've learned to have deep respect for those kind of people. You know, I had a couple, I've met a couple, we had a couple of people in my department years ago. They both have, one, one actually died and the other retired. Brilliant sociologists, like known in the field, brilliant, just like, Man, just really, and they were both Christians and like e evangelical level Christians. I don't know the exact, I mean, I know the churches they attended, which are kind of evangelical churches, but like, and in my mind, I remember when I discovered that and I said, like, wait, how can you do, have kind of that, be a scientist in the way that you're a scientist and then have this belief that seems to make no sense because it's, it's, 
except that it's built on faith. It's not built on logic. It's built on faith. And, they, and knowing the two of them is partly what shifted a big piece of my thinking about faith and knowledge and religion because I was so deeply impressed by them that I was deeply impressed by whatever they believed in because I knew whatever they believe in was was cool was like was thoughtful and smart and 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 uh, fueled by a, a, a degree of wisdom right so anyway um yeah and so anyway th did i answer that question i think i did all right hey uh opinionated matt no i didn't watch barbie but you know it's on netflix right now or prime or somewhere and i'm going to watch it i really really i really wanted to watch it i want to go to the theaters and watch it with a bunch of like i don't know uh, eight, nine, ten-year-olds just to be in the middle of that scrum, so to speak, and just be there. You know, Lori and I were going to do that <laughs> just for the fun of it, but then we never did. But I do want to watch it because, in in a way, it's it's a like a it's a social. It's very much a social commentary. And like, if you think about as a sociologist, so you have this doll. It's a Barbie doll, right? That has lasted been around for you know 60 some years or whatever it has been and has had such an impact on the culture in such a pr profoundly fascinating way as a sociologist uh shout out to my man jeff for that of course i'm interested in it but i don't go to many movies and i don't i never go to the movies and i don't spend a lot of time with movies so i might just one day just get lost in it just for the cultural experience so Max Wellbeing, do you think that the left has gone too far with its radical Marxist DEI and uh, LGBT bully cult? <laughs> LGBT bully cult. Wait, hang on. SOGI123. I don't know what that is. Critical race theory. Uh, well, here's the thing. It's not that the left has gone too far. Okay. The, here, here's the way you want to see this. Um, it's same with the right. The so-called right hasn't gone too far in other things. Um, there are aspects of the left, there are aspects of people who are promoting those, those, uh, those ways of transforming the world, which is what they all kind of represent, that absolutely there are moments and instantiations where people have absolutely gone too far. Oh, my God. This, some stories that I hear are just like, oh, my God, please. But it's not the left per se. Mind you, I do in Mike in Social 19, I'm doing critical race theory. Okay. And this would be considered critical racer. Like, you know, like, what was it? The, the National Review or somebody called me the face, the U.S. face of critical race theory. <laughs> I don't know why. But, uh, but in the sense of, like, taking race issues and deconstructing them in a way to see them in slightly different ways, Okay. Now, I'm not doing critical race theory in the way that some people have decided this is what critical race theory is. And of course, they it got developed around a certain way of seeing the world, right? That, you know, it's it's really deconstructing race and seeing race from a the perspective of, of white supremacy and 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 laws and uh, you know, both um yeah, of, of of a legal system that's held uh, unequal relationships between people of different ancestry groups in place, right? So that that's a critical race theory in that sense, right? But but if we step back and look at critical race theory from a sociological perspective, right? 
Well, it's just what we're doing is deconstructing the way human beings think about the relationships between people of different ancestry groups, I mean, and cultures. Right? That, that's w- which what we need to do. We need to take the lid off and start looking at things slightly differently. So if we call, if we see it in that kind of sense, then yeah, well, this is what, that's what we're doing in social 19 in a way. And I don't think we're taking it too far at all. I think we're just going about the right pace that we probably need to do it. Um, but, uh, but I do think that some elements, some people, they just get, they just get lost. Like they're not thinking about, dude, do you, do you really understand the implications when you say the thing that you just said there? Do you really understand? Don't, do you not see the implications of what that really means? Um, and so, yeah, like when some really wealthy, really privileged black or brown person starts talking, telling some poor white person about their white privilege, you know, and something like that. Or you set a system up by which, you know, wealthy black and brown people are elevated in a way. And I don't know, whatever it is. Right. And you just got to say like, wait, hang on a second, man. Do you take a step back here and just, do you you see what you're saying right there? Like, so people, do sometimes definitely push it too far. Yeah. And we also, one of the things that what we're seeing is, you know, uh, is that everybody, every organization, when every organization or business or group feels like they have to plant their flag in, in the, on the hill of race equality or critical race, whatever it is, right. Plant their hill on the, on the flag of race equality then um, it just seems like it's just so, there's so much of it. Like, come on, man. But everyone just feels like they have to do that because they have to show that they are, you know, we have to show that we're we're on board with this. So therefore, everywhere you turn, there's something. Um, when in fact, you know, the reality is that a lot of stuff isn't necessarily happening. Um, but it it seems like it. Yeah, so it seems like it's way out of control. But the truth is, it's really, I don't know, it's not. Some of it is and some of it isn't. That's a really good question, by the way. Um, All right, what else do we have? Yeah, white privilege. Uh, Kathleen McDonald. Yeah, white privilege. Well, you know, white privilege has, it had a, it had a lot of meaning. It has a lot of meaning until it gets thrown around carelessly. And then once it gets thrown around carelessly by so many people, it ceases to have the kind of meaning. I used to have a class, you know, if I go back 10 or 15 years and I would have a class on white privilege and really talk about the elements of life that that to help white people understand the certain levels of privilege that we have, it, it didn't seem so out of sync because it was kind of like, huh. All right, let me be really thoughtful and like let me let me be let me think about what this guy is saying because I don't know, let me think about it. But now because everybody just throws that term around, I can hardly even get it out without everybody automatically shutting down. And in fact, maybe I have something really that I want to say about white privilege. It maybe be really nice to hear. Um, yeah, the definition changes almost by the minute. Yeah, it well. Things do because everybody uses these definitions in different ways. Yeah. 
Uh, do you think students would say or feel about old shows like All in the Family? I think a lot of people would. Well, here's the ir ironic, man. The, the irony is that the other day I was watching a couple of clips from Blazing Saddles. And, you know, all the places in Blazing Saddles where they drop the N-word, right? And, I mean, it's, it's that, that movie can't be, could never be shown today. You know, like, oh, my God. And all in the family. So many things. I watch some of the clips of that and like people, you know, the people who are highly sensitive to things would would shut it, probably shut it down. Many people. But but what happened with all in the family and Blazing Saddles and a few of these, you know, these media from the 70s, um, they really pushed the conversations forward that we the people were really afraid to have and didn't know how to have. And and maybe that's kind of what we're trying to do in Social 19. Yeah. You're listening to the audio version of Social 119. At Drunk Tart, <laughs> wonder said in the comments. I wonder why she couldn't say it. Wondering what it was. I live in Michigan, a rural area, and no one is going to yell out racial slurs to a stranger for no reason. That grocery store, Pennsylvania, place. No, actually, yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing, right? So, yeah, this is actually. So, this is for what's the problem? Well, first off, I I didn't when I asked her that this is the the students who say, well, hey, what were people? What did people say? I, did, I, did, I actually wanted to pull that question back very quickly. She didn't respond to it, and I wanted to pull it back because I don't need to do that. And we don't need to hear that. But he, here's the thing is, um, I there are times when I think what I, what I said in class to her in that moment is like, man, you just – it's really difficult to imagine that some of these things – Things are said to people, um, to to m people who are a part of minority groups, you know, disabled or LGBT or black or brown or you know, immigrant, whatever it is. Right? It's just hard to imagine people say things to them. But man, I but because I'm on the kind of the front lines of this, and I talk to so many people, that they do get said things. People say some really nasty, mean things to people for no reason whatsoever. And and it's like, it's really, mostly we don't. I mean, look, the, the vast majority, what, it, what I tell my, my class, I'm like, hey, it's, you know, it's like Penn State, you know, I'll be like, I don't know, it's Penn State a racist institution or whatever. I don't know. And then I'll be like, hey, when's the last time you saw or heard or experienced something that was racist? And Oftentimes people don't have it. Usually they don't have anything to say. Like, well, I don't really know. I'm like, well, okay. So if we say that something is racist in its core, then you, we, it doesn't mean it's not racist just because you can't point to something, right? Cause there's all this indirect institutional racism or discrimination that also happens, but it's like human beings are, people are mostly good to one another 
thoughtful to one another, and in spite of the individual videos that we might see on YouTube about people being really out of control, the vast majority of people are not. It's like on an airplane, right? So you watch these freakouts on an airplane, but look, man, at any one moment, there's like 5,000 airplanes. There are 5,000 airplanes in the air right now, you know, or 10,000 or whatever it is. And like, there's so many people that are flying in these airplanes and so many people who are not freaking out. And it's just, it's not that crazy. And so we have to remember that the vast majority of the time, that's not the case. And and I think with my student the other day on Thursday, she was also saying like, yeah, I mean, obviously that that's this isn't every day in my life. I and mean, this is not it, but there are these moments. It's like, please just stop that. If even if it only happens a couple of times, two or three times, just don't do that. Like, come on, figure out how to, how to not make that happen. So, um, um, yeah, and so th there's that statement, racism is a normal feature of American life and society. That's the kind of thing that we would say and say like, okay, hang on. Uh, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by racism? What do you mean by normal? And what do you mean by feature of society? And this is, I'm not speaking as a white guy who doesn't who thinks there is no racism. I mean, I, you know, I taught here at Penn state, the, the upper level racial inequality course for like 11 or 12 or 13 years. Like I'm really pretty well versed in race inequality. But when we make a statement like that, racism is a normal feature of American life and society. What, what do we mean by that? And I think that sometimes we throw those things out and we don't stop to say like, wait, hang on. As a scientist, we what we need to do is we need to operational, we need to measure that statement. And so therefore we need to operationalize it. And that means we need to be able to measure in some quantitative way, racism, right? Because that's the feature of uh, the feature, meaning it's gonna manifest itself in some way and of American life and society. So it's gonna play itself out and we gotta be able to measure that and so like, okay, and in normal, what's normal mean? How often is normal? And sometimes we just forget those things. And I think a lot of times, and this is where, you know, the left often wants to just kind of throw these things out there and the right wants to be in denial of that. It's like, no, everything's okay. Well, just cause we, you don't see it doesn't necessarily mean that it's okay. And, you know, so I don't know, that's a thought. That's kind of cool. Do you have a conception of evil is from associate? Oh man, that's such an interesting question. Well, I had a, an interesting conversation with some of the other day uh, that, uh, I mean, we, you look at just like killing and, you know, people who do like murders and mass murders and God, whatever, I don't know, any number, this doesn't have to be a murder. I mean, there are any number of things, but. I think from a sociological perspective, maybe evil is when anything that is deliberately, I'm just thinking sociologically, so I'm not thinking about like genocide and that kind of stuff, right? Anything that is, which I could think about sociologically also, but I'm just thinking about the system, all right? Anything that is meant to divide the system and force it into a level of chaos, for the sake of being in chaos, not for the sake of it improving. So, you know, something like 
somebody like a Trump, you know, that kind of politician creates a, a sense of chaos because he doesn't play by the rules and he didn't play by the rules, whatever the rules are back going back, going back to 2016. And okay. Um, but maybe the system needs a little bit of that, right? Like, we, you know, we gotta, we gotta bust out and be a little bit like, whatever. come on, man. Like we need a little, yeah, we need to, you need to force it sometimes, you know, you just gotta force some change and change is difficult. And so, but you know, that's good. So, all right, hey, this will be good. So we got Trump now. Let's like, okay, hopefully this is gonna like shake things up and we'll go. But some of the chaos, I got the sense that some of it was not calculated enough and that for many people, um, it was a lot of it was just directed to just radically up, upend the system without any kind of thoughts about the direction in which it was, it needed to go. And then that becomes like, huh, that's a little bit more problematic because um, some order, orderedness or orderliness to it is, has some value. So when you, when you're just throwing the system into disarray, whatever that system is without any thoughts about, you know, maintaining a certain sense of, of order of stability and stasis that that's when things start moving into that realm of, of, of trouble. And when you do that in a big way, then that's, that's that term evil. But I don't like to use the word evil because it has so many implications for religion and other things that just don't make sense. Here I am expecting the worst as Sam starts to talk about Trump and I'm pleasantly surprised at his thoughtful response. Hey, grandpa's place. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I mean, yeah, I, I remember when Trump was elected, it was a, you know, Tuesday. It was pretty clear that, no, hang on. The election was on a Tuesday. So we went back in class on Thursday. Everybody was just freaking out this, you know, back in 2016. It was just a, a shit show, man. On a, on, a, on a college campus, you can imagine, right? Uh, I mean, you know, a quarter of the students who voted voted for Trump, and maybe more than a quarter, and a, and a quarter voted for Biden, and the other quarter just went in and closed their eyes and hit something, I think. I don't, it didn't really matter. But those who voted, right? Um, but I remember I brought, I said, Lori, you got to come into class with me. Lori's my wife. As you got to come in and we got to, we got we really have to address this because people are, people were melting down, man. It's like, Jesus. And, and I remember really saying like, guys, just, it's okay. You know, first off, I put a map up of the, the previous, the 2012 election, how many Republicans, how many people voted for the Republicans, you know, how many Republicans voted for Republicans? And then I put the Trump map up and it was the same. Basically people just voted for their candidate and you just got a million or so people in the middle who just switch sides in one way or another, but mostly people just vote for their party. And that's what we're going to see now. And so it's not like whatever you think about Trump at anything is just understand that people are just voting for their party and the party is more important than the candidate, which is why a lot of people will vote for Biden when in fact, I think he's like, didn't they? I don't know. I thought he died actually. Didn't Biden? The fact that he's breathing. I look at him sometimes. I'm like, dude, what the 
fine. But people will vote for him anyway. Uh, it just doesn't matter because they're gonna they're not voting for, voting for him, they're just voting for the party. And when you see that, it helps to really understand things a little bit different. Oh. Yeah, I have an opinion. Here's my opinion on Taylor Swift. Uh, what what a what a cultural phenomenon is Taylor Swift? Uh, what a cultural phenomenon! Man. Holy smokes! Um, from the get go, it's so interesting that some people just have something that they just move forward in a way that is just. And she's been doing it a long time, man. And she really put herself out there and uh, writes a lot of her music. And it's just like, what a, what a, what a cultural phenomenon. Man. And she's not, you know, listen, I'm not going to say anything negative about Taylor Swift, but it's like, like she's not the, the, the greatest singer. She's not the greatest songwriter. She's not the greatest dancer. She's not the greatest public speaker. She's not the greatest anything, but together, what a what a phenomenon man. it's so interesting to me so yeah utterly fascinated by the the, the being that is taylor swift Are we done? Jeff, are we done? Sure, we can be done. All right, man. Thanks, everybody. We'll keep going. We'll be in class on Thursday. Got a really good one for you. And next Tuesday is actually going to be a really cool class. I have something really cool for Tuesday. I'm very much looking forward to that. Okay, man. All right. See you, everybody. Thanks. Be well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social 19. Thank you to Ryan Dupree and Roland Albertson for the tunes. All other audio is used legally, licensed with MotionArray.com. Join Social 19 on YouTube Tuesdays and Thursdays at YouTube.com slash Social 19 slash live. And this podcast is edited by Hamill Media LLC Podcasts.